We're studying the book of Revelation. Last week, um, we did a lot of introductory things, which I'm not going to go over again. Uh, but we're in the, the first chapter, basically verse 5, 6, 7 is where uh, we left off last week. So let's just uh, review a couple of really key points. This is technically, and I, I think it's important for us to see it that way, the title of this book is really The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of John. It is not just the revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and that word is very important. Uh, it, it seems to me it is very important because that's really what it is. As you will see here in just a minute, uh, we'll see that specifically at verse 11, and it is repeated a number of times. He is instructed, that is, John is instructed, write down what you see. And so John does that. And one of the key phrases throughout the book of Revelation is, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, and he writes it down. And that is sometimes a challenge for us because he is uh, writing in the first century, about 95 A.D., and he's writing with the imagery and view of things that he has. So a lot of his metaphors and similes and figures of speech that he uses, he's using metaphors and similes and figures of speech that was familiar to him. And then we read it 2,000 years later. Sometimes we're not really clear what he saw. Yet almost always the point of what he saw, that is the point of the vision, is not difficult to figure out. Some of the details are, did I just lose you by those two sentences? Sometimes as we read what he saw, we say, oh my goodness, this is bizarre. And we may not always interpret it maybe as precisely as, as, as we, we should, but yet the point of what he's seen is rather clear, almost always. As a matter of fact, I think it's always very clear. So the, the revelation of Jesus Christ has three items to it. And we'll see that in um, verse 19. The things which have been, the things which are, and the things that will be. You can outline the book that way. And so chapter 1, which is what we have just begun now, is John is on the island of Patmos. Do you remember that from last week? If I give you a blank map and ask you to find it on the map, you could do that. Good. Because it was a prison island. Basically, it's a big rock. That's what it is. It's a horrible place. But it was a prison colony of the empire, and he was condemned there for a period of, of years, about five or six. And uh, Emperor uh, Domitian was the one who condemned him and sent him there. And he will tell us, we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute, that's where he sees these visions, that's where he writes this book. But he immediately opens the book with this, statement about Jesus. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, verse 4, and we talked about those. We'll go over those again in just a minute. From Jesus Christ, verse 5, it is Jesus communicating a message to these churches. And again, we did this last week. I want to do it again. Just look at these descriptive phrases in verse 5 and verse 6. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He made us to be a kingdom, priest to his holy, to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it's just, we went over most of those last weeks. These are remarkable, short, pithy statements that summarize who Jesus is and what he's done. Faithful witness, he is the faithful witness to, to God. You have cannot see God. When John uh, uh, is in the upper room with Jesus, he hears Jesus say as he's responding to Philip's question, you that have seen me have seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 exclaims that Jesus is the final revelation, the final witness to who God is. So it's almost like you want to know what God is like? Study about Jesus. Because he is the faithful witness and faithful revelation. Firstborn from the dead, that, that's prototokos, firstborn, that means he's the first one to be resurrected. 
And as the New Testament makes it clear, there will be hordes and hordes and hordes of others who put their faith in him. You and I will be part of that. And the ruler of the kings of the earth, his sovereignty, he is the universal sovereign Lord. And then it describes his character to whom he lo- who, to those of us, to him who loves us. And that love was reflected in his redemption of us, released us from the bondage to our sins by means of his blood. His shed blood is what purchased our redemption. And then the result of that is we are citizens of his kingdom. And that's what you're going to start to see in verse 7. But we're citizens of his kingdom, and we're priests to his God and Father. And that that is not a common way to refer to members of God's kingdom, to Christ's kingdom, indeed to his church, but it is in the book of First and Second Peter. I do not remember if we talked about that last week or not, so let's just briefly talk about that. When it says we are priests to his God and Father, what does that mean? What does a priest do? Serve. Serve. Represent. Represents. So, in a sense, we are the, we are the priests, we are the representatives, we are the servants, we are the intercessors of God on earth. And so we, and there are so many figures of speech that describe us, but we are the representatives, intercessors, we are the ones who serve the living God, our Heavenly Father. And that's that doesn't is not explained here, but that again is one of, one of the results of what Christ did. It makes us possible to become part of the family of God, where we refer to God now as our Father. Which I mean, all of these, almost every one of these words is really important, describing who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. And John, and he just can't help himself; he just explodes into a doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then he, he asks us, Amen. <laughs> now don't forget, you know this. We we it's correct, there's nothing wrong with that. But Amen. Amen is first of all, it's Amen in in Greek. It's it's a title of Jesus. It is a title of Christ. He's the great you're gonna see this in one of the letters to the seven churches. He's the great Amen. Amen literally means let it be true. Let it come about. And so when John says amen, it's not like he's closing a prayer. I mean, it, it's all right to use that to close a prayer. As a matter of fact, that's very biblical. But it's far more than that. He's saying, let this come true. Let this be that his dominion will be forever and ever. It's like he is agreeing with the finality of God's plan. And so to exclaim, as he did, glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, let this occur, let this be, let this happen, it's true. You will see, for example, in the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus, you've read this, I know, it truly, truly, I say to you, in Greek, that's amen, amen, I say to you. So it's, it isn't just a conclusion for a prayer, it is, it is an exclamation point at the end of the doxology, let this be. Let this be true, and I can't wait for it to happen. And when we say amen, it's in agreement to the prayer of Yeah, and it's almost like we're saying in faith, Woody, may this come about, because I totally trust in you. You are the God who is the great amen, the true one. I mean, I'm really embellishing that, right. but that's the idea. It's, it's a statement of faith. To end our prayers with amen is a statement of faith and trust in God. You are going to do what I'm asking you to do. Your way. I, it may not be exactly the way I'd like to say but you're going to do this. You're going to answer this. And don't forget, too, this is a quick money trail, but when Jesus was about to go back to the Father, he said something that sometimes we miss. He says, I'm going back to the Father. From now on, pray in my name, and the Father will do it. So that it's, it's, it's something that sometimes we miss. We pray to the Father 
through the Lord Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of technical. But the point is that our relationship with Jesus gives us the right and the authority of the name of Jesus to talk to the Father about anything. And so we end our prayers with amen. That's a statement of confidence that God's heard and God's going to answer. All right. Now we got one more verse, but verse 7. I'm almost sure every one of your translations, regardless of the one you have, will have the beginning of verse 7 either in quotation marks or italics or a bold. It depends on how the editors uh, illustrate But it's a quote from the Old Testament. And it begins, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. If you have a Bible that italicizes that, it might have a little letter, either as a, a superscription note or as a footnote or however they do those things in the translation you have, and they will refer you to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I'm hoping that's what your, your translation does. If it doesn't, make sure you make a note of that. Because every one of you in this room remembers Daniel 7.13, don't you? Okay, now three of you are shaking your head. <laughs> Two of you are looking at me, okay, sort of. And the rest of you is this deer, you know, in the headlight type of look. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And one like the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days, riding, sitting on the cloud. It's a statement of the Son of Man, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, coming again to claim his kingdom. Now you do remember that one of the major thesis statements of the book of Daniel is the final kingdom is the kingdom of God. Right? Now, please say right to that. Please say, okay, good. I just want to make sure you're with me. So this, what I'm trying to get, the only reason I'm dwelling on this a little bit is, and you're going to see this again and again and again, we studied Daniel as the foundation and framework. Now you're starting to see why it's such an important foundation framework because it keeps referring back to Daniel. So what John is doing is he's linking us back to Daniel and saying, Daniel gives you the framework for understanding, and here are the promises about to fulfill, to be fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is about to come to earth. The rebellion is about to be crushed, and the recognition of the King of kings and Lord of lords as the Lord of the universe is about to be recognized. So John, if he's given this very, very brief description of Jesus, now immediately goes into this extraordinary event that's about to happen. The climax of history, the coming and establishment of the kingdom of God. And so he starts, and then he says, every eye will see him. That reminds you immediately of the Lord Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, specifically in about verse 19 or 20 or something like that. But the reason I'm saying that, because remember, in Matthew 24, the disciples had asked Jesus, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus responds to that in verse 29 and says, when I come, it'll be like the lightning, and this is a simile, it'll be like the lightning that goes from the east to the west, and nobody will miss it. That's what Jesus was saying. So John is saying the same thing here. When Daniel 7.13 is fulfilled, no one will miss it. Every eye will see him. Joe isn't going to say, Jim, did, did Jesus return last night? No, I mean, that's a silly and ludicrous idea. I mean, but the point that John is making is when he returned, coming on the clouds, and Daniel 7.13 is fulfilled, there's not one human being alive that will miss it. Now, that has significant application because some will accept him and some continue. It's amazing. Some will continue to reject him and fight him the Battle of Armageddon. So you see what he's doing? And then he, so we don't miss it, even those who pierced him. 
And that's the echo of Zechariah 14. They will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. It will be the national salvation of the Jewish people. Romans chapter 11 verse 26 will be fulfilled. The Jewish people, all Jewish people alive when Jesus returns will look upon him and believe. After 2,000 years, they will finally recognize Jesus as a Messiah. So, I mean, you can see verse 7 is just, I mean, it's linking a lot of really important passages in three short bang, bang, bang phrases. Daniel 7, 13, everybody will see it, even those who rejected him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Because the human race is going to understand all that God has done in Christ. And some will mourn. And then John adds, which was a very uh, a very common phrase in the early church, even so, amen. Let it be, let it come, let it occur, amen. All right. Now, at this rate, we'll finish Revelation in 2019. I mean, we're just really going slow. Everybody, sounds like it's raining again. Everybody with me? Now, verse 8. Thou hast eight, the Lord Jesus speaks. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I want you to notice four things in this verse. Number one, Alpha. Number two, Omega. Number three, the phrase, who is, who was, and who is to come. And number four, Almighty. So first of all, Alpha, let's do them together, Alpha and Omega. I think you know this, but in case you don't. Alpha and Omega is the name of the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So if Jesus were using the English alphabet as his frame of reference, what would he say? I am the A and the Z. Now, that kind of language means I am the beginning, I am the end, and if he's the beginning and the end, what's left out? Nothing is left out. Let's put it, and this is the way, and if, you, if you're really jotting serious notes down, you would write down Isaiah 44, 6, and Isaiah 48, verse 12. Isaiah 44, verse 6, and Isaiah 48, verse 12, because in those two passages, Yahweh says that of himself. Yahweh is that Old Testament title for God. Yahweh says, I am the Alpha and Omega. So if Yahweh says that and Jesus is saying that, what conclusion should you draw? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the great I am, the self-sufficient, self-existent one in the universe. Now, in addition, keep pushing this because this is the point. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the creator. I am the Omega. I am the end. I am the consummation of all history. So I was there when it began. I am there as it ends. Another way of saying that, I mean, there's so many ways you can unpack this phrase, I'm the Alpha and Omega. He is saying something that everything, everything is under my lordship. I am the defining element of everything. And that's probably what most people in 2015 are missing. Because they don't see him like that. They don't, I mean, very broadly, they don't see God like that. What many, many people do is they compartmentalize their faith and they put it over here and it has no connection with anything else in their life. Mm -hmm. A statement like this doesn't allow you to do that. Well, I should, maybe I should put it this way. A statement like this should cause you to examine your compartmentalization of things. 
Because if he really is the beginning and the end and everything in between, then you can't ignore him. Or if you choose to ignore him, you ignore him to your own peril, but also to your own shortcoming. You're missing the main point of everything. What we've done in the 21st century, especially in this postmodern world, is we've turned the spotlight from God to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are the defining element. Everything revolves around us. Personal autonomy is our core value. And God is saying through Jesus Christ, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. If we turn ourselves loose uh, in our faith and believe this, then we are saying he's interested in every aspect of our life. And as we turn over more and more of our life to him, that he will confirm that within our being and spirit that what we're doing is worthy of giving him that commitment. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll actually experience it as if someone gave us a gift, mm -hmm. the initial gift in Christ, and then the development thereafter mm -hmm. as we unfold ourselves to him. Mm -hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, there's, you said quite a few things there, Fred, but I mean, it, the, he lays the gift on the table, as we often say, and he's asking us to pick it up. But to pick up that gift and is to pick up the most important gift that's ever offered to us, and it changes us. And if... And it is. If what he's saying here is true, then it begins to transform everything. That you, and you start to begin, and it does not happen instantly, but you begin to understand his lordship. And you begin to understand, let's, let's make that a very practically encouraging thought, because lordship can almost be, ooh, that's not what it's to be in a sense, because it means that he's interested and concerned about every single facet of your life. Bring him into that. Don't compartmentalize him here. Bring him into everything. Because if he's Lord, he's he knows everything anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're you're not high. So that it should become a very positive aspect. This is my Lord. This is what He's done for me. And we read that in verse five. We read that in verse six. So I want to, as He gave everything for me, I now want to give back everything to Him, in faith, mm -hmm. because of who He is. I mean, this is, I guess what I want you guys to think about is meditate on this thought. I am the Alpha and Omega. That language is a philosophical concept that was used in Greek philosophy. And that, and that doesn't mean anything other than it deserves some thinking and some meditation, some application. He's the beginning and the end of everything. And if he's the beginning and end of everything, that means he's the, he's the, the Lord of everything in between too, which means... Man, this is my Lord and Savior. The third thing he says, Alpha is number one, Omega is number two. The third thing he says, who is, who was, and who is to come. That's funny. It sounds a little odd. It's kind of unusual. But that's how you speak of Jesus in terms of time. You can't speak of Jesus, he was, which is accurate, but man, that doesn't cover it all. Who is present and who is to come. So who is, who was, and who is to come is another way of saying he is eternal. Jesus Christ is not confined by time. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand that at all. Intellectually, in my mind, I cannot really understand eternity. But that God is eternal. God is above time and above space. He's not confined to time. So what that means, and this is stated in, in Scripture, what it means is Jesus knows you from an eternal perspective. He knows Joel from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb on into eternity. That's how God sees Joel. That's how God sees me. That's how God sees every one of us in this room. Because if he is not bound by time, who is, who was, who is to come, 
And he sees everything from an eternal perspective. So if he's Alpha and Omega and sees everything from an eternal perspective, can you trust him? Can you have confidence in him? Can you believe that he's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish? I mean, you're sort of silly if you think, no, he can't. He's contingent. He's kind of waiting to see if everything works out. Then he'll make some more decisions. You know, that's just, that's a silly way to think about God. And so what is being stated here is nothing short of astonishing. It's summarizing in, in very short phrases. Jesus is God. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the beginning and end of everything. He's above time. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, when Moses asked the Lord, say, what should I tell Pharaoh, which God I am? Where does that come from? Is that in the Old Testament? Yes, Exodus 3.14, absolutely. And actually, he... I am. I'm well, it's actually the it's actually the origin of the title of God, uh, Yahweh. Yeah, okay. that, that very very important name for God, but it 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 means that He is the self sufficient, self existent. Uh, I am great, uh, uh, one of the universe. He is not. Uh, um, he has no needs. He's above time, I and mean, He just He exists. Nothing caused God. So, I mean, it's, it's, you can get very philosophical with that, but it's very practical in the sense that the great I am is probably, or Yahweh, is probably the single most important term, name, because God's names are revelatory, they're revealing, they're telling us something about him that explains his self-existence, his self-sufficiency. God has no needs, and he's not caused. He is, or literally, he am. No, I mean, you know, that's silly to talk like that, but that's you try to capture all those ideas in one phrase or one word. That's what Yahweh does. But I want you to notice one thing else about that verse, the last, the fourth of four, the Almighty. Some of you, do you remember, have you ever remembered that worship course, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Shaddai? Remember singing that? That's Hebrew, that's Almighty. El Shaddai is the Almighty. And El Shaddai is a Hebrew title for God, which means he is the commander of all the hosts of the armies of heaven. It's a military term. It's a term of extraordinary power. So if he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of everything, and he's eternal, he is also the all-powerful God. Nothing upsets him. Nothing terrorizes him. Nothing causes him to be afraid. And when Jesus says, you know, when he's on the cross and he's approaching all this horrible uh, suffering he's going to do, he said, if I wanted to, I could call the armies of heaven and snuff everybody out. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that's kind of the point. But that's not why I'm here. I'm going to demonstrate my El Shaddai by dying on the cross for lost humanity. I'm going to destroy Satan by dying on the cross for lost humanity. And then, by being resurrected from the dead, I will conquer death, the greatest enemy of the human race there is, because it's the penalty for it. But I'm going to, do, I'm going to show my El Shaddai that way. And that's why, that's why the first century said, that's not the kind of Messiah we want. But they misunderstood the whole point of the Old Testament revelation. Yeah. So when Jesus is saying all that, He's saying in verse 8, and this is just loaded with remarkable doctrinal truth about who Jesus is. And it's for that reason, and you've heard me say this, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, you know, you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You have to decide. He is either who he said he is, or he's an idiot. He's a liar. Because nobody says these things as Jesus, that we just looked at one little verse. We look at thousands of them. But he said one little verse. I mean, no person says that unless they're crazy, lying, or they mean it. And so you start examining all the evidence. That's what Lewis said. I invite you to examine the claims of Christ. Examine the evidence. Is he who he is claiming to be? And if he is, 
You can't just say, well, he really isn't that important. I'll just sort of think about him tomorrow. That's why the book of Hebrews says today is the day to respond to Jesus. No way. All right, isn't that, it's a great verse, isn't it? I mean, good night. I, I could spend another hour on it. Joel. Oh, I thought you had your hand. All right? All right, let's move on. Now John, he, it's, I'm not sure why he organized, but he's writing on the inspiration of the Spirit. You would think this would be at the beginning, but it isn't. So now he tells us about himself. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance which are in Jesus. Tribulation, the kingdom, the perseverance, all words that characterize you know, the believers. I was in the island called Patmos, and we looked at where that is last week because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. As, I, as we looked at last week, Emperor Caesar Domitian had condemned him to that island, that prison island. And so that's where he is. And he says, I was in the spirit. A little bit of a difficult phrase. Is, does that mean he was supernaturally transported? Does it just mean I was worshiping on the Lord's day? Because he tells us on the Lord's day. That's, that's the day. So it's Sunday. Because as you know, when the first century church referred to the Lord's day, they meant Sunday. That's why we are almost positive that the early church worshipped on Sunday, which is why we worship on Sunday. We don't worship on the Sabbath. worship on Sunday because it's a celebration of the resurrection. And I heard behind me a loud voice like, now notice the simile, like the sound of a trumpet. It isn't a trumpet. It's like a trumpet. So it's loud. It's unmistakable. Saying, so a voice like, it's an authoritative powerful voice saying write in a book what you see as a key phrase this is a key phrase in the book of revelation write down what you see and that's why as i said a moment ago one of the key phrases in the book of revelation is i saw i saw i saw he's writing down what he sees and he does it in obedience to jesus and send it to the seven churches in, and then he lists them. Last week, remember, we looked at the map and went around the circle. We went and located every one of them. I told you to underline it it's on page seven of your of your map, of your note. But just look at it. I think it's seven. Isn't that where it is, page seven? <clears throat> so, or page eight, excuse me. So it looks like this. It's top of page eight. Just, I mean, I'm not going to go through this again today because we did it last week. But just, if you weren't here, just take the map and just go around. It's a circle. It starts with Ephesus, and you go north, and then around east, and you just keep coming around until you come back to, to Ephesus. And clockwise. It's like, huh? Clockwise. Yes, yeah. clockwise. Yes, clockwise, starting with Ephesus. Okay. Now, as I, let me quickly mention this, and it's in your notes. These are the seven Asiarchs. These are the seven most important cities of Asia. Now, remember, Asia is the name of the Roman province. They're not talking about China and India. That's not how they thought about that in the first century. But my point is that these are the seven most important. These are the churches that had been planted and discipled by Paul and John. Paul didn't plant all of them. Those that he didn't, John planted. So these are the most, these are the church. I mean, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. John devoted the rest of his life, which was about 25 years in Ephesus, discipling and mentoring leaders. So these are the most privileged churches in the first century. And he addresses, this is he, Jesus, addresses a message to each one of the seven, which is what we will start studying next week. But before we do that, we have this remarkable description of Jesus from verse 12 through verse 16. And uh, we won't get this finished, but we have approximately 20 minutes. So let me stop for a minute before we start looking and reading and studying this wonderful description of our Lord. Any questions? Anything you want me to ask? Did you say that John was spent 25 years at Ephesus? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Right. The remaining years of his life, with the exception of that roughly five-year period he was on Patmos, uh, John... Um, so they were well-established then when Paul was writing. Uh, Paul planted the church of Ephesus about 53, oh, that, 54 okay, AD. So that would have been okay. almost 40 years earlier yeah, the church at right. Ephesus was planted. And then he spent three years there in his third missionary journey. And then John, John is the only one, we talked about that, John is the only one of the 11 disciples that wasn't martyred. He lived well into his 90s. So, so he outlived Paul. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, by almost 30 years. When I was reading that maybe in his advanced years he was not martyred or executed, but put on the island of Patmos where he couldn't, Really do any harm? I, I don't know. Just... Well, in a, in a way, uh, he he was, uh, but it wasn't so much to do any harm. He was being punished because he was yeah. preaching about Christ. But yeah, but he was released from Patmos and spent several more years. It's it's hard. We can't be real tight with the chronology. But John is the only one of the eleven that was not martyred. He lived a, but he was very. And this is one of the really important things about John. And this is a bunny trail, but I'll say it. He discipled dozens, maybe as many as a hundred key leaders of what would be the leaders of the second century, the second century church. Um, I know some of these names you don't know, but men like Polycarp, Tatian, I mean, in really important leaders, and some, we have a lot of their writings, they all were discipled by John. So John was doing what... Um, what is, is, is the mark of someone who is very serious, it's the ministry of multiplication. I am going to disciple and mentor leaders so that when I die, they'll carry it on. I can see that even in the book of John. Mm-hmm. Is that so much to disciple? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God just, uh, God just chose John. For the rest of the 11, the other 10 were martyred. Some very early. But others, John, John was not. And you know, that's up to the Lord. If you remember the very last chapter of John, um, Peter and, and Jesus are walking along the shore of Galilee and John following them. And Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. He's going to be martyred. You're going to have to stand for me. And John, Peter turns around and says, what about him? Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, that's none of your business. <laughs> I mean, he, that's not exact, but that's the point. Yeah. You know, that's not your business, Peter. Don't you worry about John. I'll take care of John. The plan I have for him, it doesn't. It's not your any of your business. Don't worry about John. Just worry about what I have you to do. Yep. How, how did these seven letters, uh, seven churches, get uh, this book? Was it was it transcribed seven times? Sure, sure, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is there another one, Jim? Oh, this is just a little side note. We were, we were doing a little study and had me looking at John, looking at the apostles, but John is what we're looking at now. And it's interesting to me that when he was on the cross, he said he, he asked John to take mm, care of his mother, mother, which would suggest that, that Christ knew then that mm-hmm. he was not going to be martyred. He was that, that's exactly right. That's right. Good. He could have said that to several of the others if he'd want to be picked out. That's right. That's good. John? John would take care of Jesus' mother. Yeah, very good. Uh, I have one more question. Absolutely. When we're also looking at John, he and Peter, when they were preaching mm-hmm. and, and astonished the authorities mm-hmm. because they were unlettered or uneducated mm-hmm. men. So I have to assume and they, they did not know how to write. Or so, oh, no. Know that, no, no, that, that would not be correct. When they said that, when the Sanhedrin made that comment, that was a very derisive and uh, unkind and glib comment. Um, and they, I think they said that because you guys have not studied at the theological school of Gamaliel like we have. But listen, this is, we know this. This is documented. Peter and John and James, James and John are brothers, they, were, they all had fishing businesses on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that meant they were involved in, they knew three languages. They had to know three languages. They were very, very articulate. And this idea that they're dumb, stupid Galilean fishermen, is, that's, that's not true. They had to be conversant in quite a few languages. And they were very good businessmen. 
The business of Zebedee, which was the father of James and John, was a very lucrative fishing business that extended well to the east, that people outside of the kingdom, they were, I mean, so these, they kept incredible records. They had many, many, many employees. He had, he had franchised the fishing business. So these are not dumb, stupid fishermen. And, and they're saying that because, well, you didn't study at the theological schools we studied at. And so they're, they're making these incredibly unkind remarks that just betray the ignorance that you can see betrays the ignorance of people who say, see, they're just stupid fishermen. How could they have written a book like this? You're missing the whole point. They may not have been to Gamaliel's theological school in Jerusalem, but that doesn't mean they're stupid. They were very shrewd businessmen. And they had to know three. You, do you know three languages? Can you converse? I can. I know several languages. I can't converse in them. I mean, I have to have my dictionary. I mean, I, you know, and no, these guys are conversant in Hebrew, in Greek, Aramaic, and some of them, some of them may have known some of the dialects on the north. So, I mean, these are, these are really remarkable individuals. <clears throat> and you see that in the way they write. Verse 12. <clears throat> Quickly. Quickly. Who was the first disciple martyr? Was it Stephen? James. James. Brother. James. Half-brother? Uh, no, that beat James. That, yeah. Was it John? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Was... James, John's brother. Jesus, James, the half-brother uh, of Jesus, lived. He writes the epistle of James. Right. And he lives. Uh, he is martyred, too, but uh, a little bit later. Yeah. All right. Verse 12. And I turned, now remember he heard this voice like it was authoritative, like the sound of a trumpet. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we will learn when we see this later on in verse 19 and 20, the seven golden lampstands symbolize these seven churches. But for now, just keep that in your hat. And in the middle of the lampstands was one, now notice the language. There's simile, you know what a simile is. It's a figure of speech introduced by like or as. So in the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Immediately, what Old Testament text are you thinking of? Chapter? Verse? Got it. All right, let's do that again. One like a son of man. What's the Old Testament text? Do I need to write that on the board? No. Okay, I want to make sure you... Okay, I'm going to do this one more time. One like a son of man. What's the text? Daniel 7.13. Listen, when a Jew of the first century heard son of man, that's what they thought of. Because Daniel chapter 7 was the most important chapter to them in the Old Testament because it gave focus to their God. Yahweh was going to bring history to its end around the Messiah. And one of the titles of the Messiah is son of man. And by the way, do you think that is a coincidence that Jesus Christ referred to himself continually as Son of Man? Or do you think that's just a coincidence? <clears throat> now, I, my cynicism, it's dripping from my mouth. I mean, so I just want you to don't miss these connections from what we were studying for several months in Daniel. You are to make those connections. This is the Son of Man. This, this is the Messiah. This is the one Daniel is talking about. And it goes, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across the breast with a golden girdle. Now, again, I mean, it's, John is writing down what he saw, and it's so hard for you and me to try to picture this in our mind's eye. But this description of Jesus is a description of an authoritative majestic king who's coming in power for judgment. Jesus entered Jerusalem on the fall of a donkey. He will enter Jerusalem when he returns on a white horse. That's quite a contrast. Jesus in his first advent, was the suffering servant who dies for his people and is resurrected. In his second coming, 
He will come as the Lion of Judah, the warrior king. That's just the language you're going to be, we're going to be reading about. Jesus will return as the warrior king. That is the image we are to have of Jesus. So that's that's what that's what the Jew of the first century was struggling with. We thought he was coming as the warrior king who was going to drive Rome out. But that's not what Isaiah 53 says. That's not what Zechariah says. That's not what Jeremiah says. No. He will come as the suffering servant to die. But the second time, when he returns, every eye will see it. Nobody's going to mistake it. He will be the warrior king. That's what Revelation 19, about 2019, when we get there, that's what you'll see. But here you're getting this introduction of what John is seeing. So you have this language of this king, this majestic king, the Lord of the universe. Verse 14, now just continue. Look at the similes, look at the figures of speech. And his head and his hair were white like white wool. So, I mean, white is distinguished power and authority like snow. That's why we like winter, because purity. <laughs> nobody laughs. You're supposed to laugh at that, but nobody does. You think I'm serious. Okay, well, that's good. See? That's why we like winter. <laughs> no, well, anyway, because in the Bible, in the Bible, to be white like snow is, is a symbol of purity and righteousness and holiness. And so here you have the infinite, wise, powerful king returning. His eyes, again, it's a simile, like a flame of fire, omniscient, piercing eyes that don't miss anything. That's, I mean, that's the image. His eyes, like a flame of fire, pierces, purifies, doesn't miss anything. He's the omniscient, all-powerful king. Verse 15, and his feet were, again, notice the simile, like burnished bronze, burnished polished, um, sharpened, you know, beautiful, glowing bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. He's, he's ready to accomplish what he came back to do. And his voice, again, like the sound of many waters. That's authority that communicates power, that communicates intensity. If you've ever, some of you have ever been to the Niagara Falls, or I mean any other falls in the world, but Niagara's kind of a nut ruin, that's, you can hardly talk. It's so loud and, you know, it's just so incredibly powerful. That's what John is saying. His voice is like sound of many waters, like water cascading over falls, power and authority. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Incidentally, that had tremendous significance in the first century. Because the Caesars, and you know this, maybe you don't know it, but if you did know it, I'm reminding you, if you don't know it, it's kind of an interesting fact of history. Every time a new Caesar would come on the throne, he would issue a new series of coins. Guess whose image was on the coin? His image. And what they often did was on the one side was his image, on the other side was his son. And his son was called the Son of God, and his son held the seven stars in his hand. Emperor Domitian, the one who sent John to Patmos, we have dozens of these coins that we found in all the archaeological digs all over the world. But on the one side is Domitian, on the other side is his son, and his son is sitting on a throne, he calls him the son of God, and he's holding these seven stars in his hand. What's this telling us? Jesus is the real son of God. Not Domitian son. Jesus is the real son of God who has the power and authority to call human beings to account. Not Domitian son. He's a puny little speck on the dust of history compared to Jesus. And out of his mouth 
becomes a two-edged sword. And that, <clears throat> that should remind you of something. Because in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is described as a two-edged sword. Jesus is the logos of God. Jesus is the word of God revealed. So this is this symbolic language that he is the living word of God as he's introduced in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And finally, his face was like, again, notice the simile, like the sun shining in its strength. If you go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, in the Mount of Transfiguration, James and John and Peter, the inner circle, they are privileged to see Jesus transfigured in front of them. And John, or Matthew writes, and the face of Jesus shone like the sun. If you go to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, who is commissioned to be the prophet of God, he is invited, he, it's, a, it's a vision into the throne room of God, and he describes God, whose face shone like the light of the sun. And it just keeps appearing again and again. It's trying to describe what the enthroned God looks like. And these, these words, this language, is just, it's majestic. It communicates power and authority. This is the king with all the power and authority, the almighty, the eternal one, the alpha and omega, showing up to sit in judgment. He's about to bring the rebellion to an end. We've been waiting for that for 2,000 years. Phase one, first advent, is when he deals with the problem of sin. Phase two is when he crushes the final elements of the rebellion. Satan, his minions, the Antichrist, and all of those who have rejected his grace. All right? It's kind of neat stuff, isn't it? I did, what, I, what John's doing here, what I want you as the takeaway from this morning as we get ready to leave, I want to do one more thing, but as we get ready to leave, is this is your Jesus. This is the one you've put your faith in. He is your friend. He invites you to call him that. He is your Savior. He is your Redeemer. But he is also the majestic, powerful Lord of the universe. Isn't that amazing that God has condescended to that point where the one who's the majestic sovereign Lord of the universe is also our friend, our brother. He's in the family of God. He's our big brother in the family of God. But this is also who he is. So you have this, inc this incredible dimension of our God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And... Uh, this is who he is, and this is the son described. Man. So we keep that balance. This is our Lord and our master and our sovereign and our king and our friend and our big brother and our savior and our redeemer. I mean, it's all, he's all of these things. So as we say he is our friend who wants to walk with us, he invites his disciples using that language. But at the same time, we want to remember who he's also this enthroned, majestic king. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, he's, he is my friend, but he's also my Lord. So it's keeping that balance as to who he is. Okay? Yeah. Uh, it tells us that uh, he is not willing that any should perish. And he comes as Savior, Redeemer. And then he comes here in power wielding the sword necessary to to cause those to submit who would oppose him. But for those he sends by their own decision away from him, people, he doesn't do that in the same spirit, does he? I mean, from what you, your readings and studies that it's a different attitude when he has to say to a person, depart from me, I never knew you. Whereas Satan and his angels, it's a real battle. How Have you 
reflected on that in, in a sense? You know, Fred, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. I mean, um, that will occur at the Great White Throne, which is in Revelation yeah. 20. But it is depicted in those verses as an act of the pure justice of Almighty God. There isn't, and I hope you understand how I'm saying this, there's not the language of remorse here by God. There's not the language of, I wish I didn't have to do this. And I think part of that is, Fred, because it tells us the books are opened and God evaluates, I guess you could say, but declares that what I am doing in separating you from me for eternity, which is really what, I mean, hell is lots of things. It's judgment, it's eternal fire, but it is the eternal separation from God, which is the most unimaginable thing. I can't imagine that. But God, God says, and it's very clear, the language is, this is an act of my justice. And I think among many other things, those books, this is my understanding of that among, there are a lot of things going on there. But I believe in those books are going to be a record of every opportunity God gave that human being to respond to his grace. And they refused to do it. In the language of Paul in Romans 1, so that they are without excuse. And as C.S. Lewis says in his great book, The Great Divorce, Jesus said to the Father, Thy will be done. Jesus looks at them and says, Thy will be done. You chose it. Our rejection of God's grace while we are alive becomes the trajectory for all eternity. People will be sent to the lake of fire because they chose that. They chose to reject God's grace many, 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 many times. I believe that strongly, Fred. I think that's how the scriptures depict that. And I don't mean that this to sound harsh. This isn't the takeaway I wanted you to have so much. But it, 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 you ask a question. So that's how I think we should see this. And so that's why the, the New Testament, well, indeed the Old too, but the New Testament keeps saying, today is the day to decide about Jesus. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day to decide. And so, you know, for all, I'm, I'm hoping and I believe that's true, everyone around this, this table has made that decision of faith. You're now a child of God. You're, you're, your destiny is secure. Who you are, your identity is secure. Now your whole perspective is your eternal focus is not the great white throne. It's eternity with Christ. We will not be at the great white throne. We will not be there standing before the Lord. That's, we're not going to be there for that. So that's a wonderful truth because Jesus took our judgment. And we applied that to our life by faith. So tomorrow what we want to do is we want to look at, I mean, uh, next Wednesday, what we want to do is look at verse 17 through 20, where we get a little bit of an interpretation. Who, who, these seven lamps, what is that? What's going on there? And then a the particularly important verse, which is verse 19, which is a way to outline the book. And that only take a few minutes. Then we're going to probably most of our time next week will be the first message, the message to the book of Ephesus, uh, to, I mean, to the church at Ephesus. So if you have time, look at verse 1 through 7 for chapter 2. And I ask you this question. Would you like to pastor the church at Ephesus? And if so, why? I would. I would have loved to, purchase, to pastor the church at Ephesus. And I'll explain why. See if you can figure out why I said I would really like to pastor the church at Ephesus. So that'll give you something to think about. You'll probably forget it the moment you walk out of the building. But in case you don't forget it, that's what I'd love for you to do. But we're going to finish chapter 1 and get into the first of the seven messages. We'll definitely spend a good chunk of the time on Ephesus because there's so much to say about Ephesus. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get out of here. It doesn't sound like it's raining anymore, so we should be able to make it to our cars before we get drenched. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege of studying this book. As we read last week in verse 7, there is a blessing that is promised by you for those who study this book, so we're anticipating that. 
just to understand in a greater detail your plan for this planet is uh, an important blessing in and of itself. My prayer, Lord, is that everyone here in this room has made that decision of faith and that they are walking with you. That's a process. We learn that. We learn what it means to walk with you. We're growing in our obedience. We're growing in our love. We're growing in bringing our lives into uh, tune with you. And that takes time. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you, too, for this this picture that John has painted of the glorified, powerful, enthroned, majestic Lord Jesus. This is the Lord Jesus we worship. This is the Lord Jesus who has conquered death, who is enthroned, who in all his power and glory and majesty, he is our friend. He is our brother. He's our big brother in the sense, in the family of God, but he's also our rich Savior and our Redeemer, our coming King. But he's also this majestic, enthroned Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship and whom we serve. Be with us now as we go our separate ways. Watch over us and help us in all we do and all we say to represent you well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you in a week. Amen.